Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I am sitting here again today in isolation, watching my hair grow out of control and watching the sun rotate around the earth day after day after day. It makes me hopeful, makes me grateful, makes me uh, happy to see that we're all still together and happy and doing everything we can to survive this uh, these strange times that we live in. I am... Very excited today because I'm able to help out some of my audience members. They've most of my audience members are primarily rock and roll designers, and they've reached out to me a few times. Like, hey, man, can we know all of our friends? You're you're kind of reaching out to all of our friends, and that's great, and we love hearing their voices. But could you kind of reach out to a few more theatrical guys and some some dance and opera designers? So I. Did a quick Google search and I found one who I who was very excited to talk to me. His name is Jimmy Lawler. He is a lighting designer out of New York City. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for sitting down and chatting with me today. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I see that you are back in New York City. I know that you're out of town for quite a while. Can you uh, want to fill us in on what you've been up to recently? Uh, well, recently, not a whole hell of a lot. Stay, <laughs> stay, staying alive. Uh, actually... My wife congratulations. just had our, thank you. My wife just had our second child. So, um, congratulations we, again. Thank you. Yeah. She was born at the beginning of March, kind of when the world started falling apart. And, uh, you know, not that any pandemic can be convenient, but, uh, we had prepared as a family, you know, to take some time off to be with our newborn. So I've actually only been away from work, if you want to think of it that way, uh, as away from work as a freelancer can be, I suppose, uh, for about uh, a month or two. Uh, you know, I blocked off about a month and a half to stay home with my, my new child and with my wife. And uh, so I was, I was kind of forced to do that anyway. So that worked out kind of nicely. Um, you know, it's funny in the, in the uh, being a freelancer, you know, we don't get vacation time, time off, that sort of thing. We just choose not to work. And uh, we were in the delivery room and uh, the nurse, the, my, what, they had taken my wife out to, to do some tests or something and the nurse was in there and she said, you know, how long are you gonna be able to be home with your family? And I said, oh, you know, I, I think I'll probably be able to do about six weeks. Um, you know, I, I might be able to stretch it into eight, but I, I'm hoping for at least six. And she was blown away. She said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And it, it took me aback. I was like, that's interesting. Why? Why? And she said, well, most people take two weeks or get a week off and then they have to go back to work. And I realized, oh yes, those people are also getting paid during that week. I am choosing not to work. I, I work for myself. So I'm choosing not to take work for that course of time. I am not getting paid during that time though. It is not paid time off. So, uh, you know, it was one of those moments where I start to appreciate some of the upsides of the way our industry is structured. Um, you know, I can, I can choose to take as much time off as I want, as long as my bills are still paid. Um, and my, my wife is a nurse. I always like to say I married outside of the family. Um, you know, I didn't marry a theater person or a person in performance. So uh, she has a normal job. She has paychecks, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we are able to like make sure the rent gets covered uh, while I'm not working, which is very, very fortunate, especially now, as it turns out. Uh, taking six weeks off, I would imagine the the nurses look to you like, are you a, a drug dealer or something? Yeah, how do you, exactly. <laughs> how do you take six weeks off? Well, that's one of the nice things about being in, in, in New York is, you know, they run into show folk all the time. Oh, yeah, so yeah. They're, they're like, oh, 
Got it. Theater. Got, got, it. It. And, got it. And, you know, it's funny because the, the inevitable question when you say you do theater is, oh, do you work on Broadway? And it's like, uh, well, I have worked on Broadway a, a couple times, but you guys know that there's more theater out there than just Broadway, right? Um, you know, there's, there's other ways, other forms of live entertainment. Um, so, uh, but they were all wonderful and, and we were very lucky where we went that, that, we were taken great care of and then shipped out real fast because suddenly there was a pandemic that the hospital had to worry about. So yeah, everything looks great. Signs check out, get out of here. Uh, get out of here. For your yeah, own good. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So, and, and then we, up a bed. we, we gave, we, uh, my wife gave birth. Everything was great. We came home for a week. We were here in New York. Uh, and then basically the second it would have been safe for my, our, our daughter to travel. Uh, we hopped in a car and we drove down to Virginia where my parents live just outside of DC um, to be there to, to shelter in place uh, in a much bigger place than our, our two bedroom New York apartment. <laughs> so that uh, you could avoid elevators and uh, city streets and stuff like that. Sounds very I clever. I think we went two weeks without seeing anybody uh, other than the people who lived under our roof. And we have a four-year-old son and he loves to go outside and he's very social and it's, it would have been very difficult in New York to, for him to understand that you can't be as social anymore as you used to be, or at least not in the same way. So. Oh man, to be that densely packed in New York to just go to Virginia and just run wild shot over i would imagine there was some sort of uh acreage even uh yes yes my well i mean my parents live on a uh on about a third of an acre it's not that big but it backs up to a golf course and a forest so there's there's nice. a lot of fishing and he learned how to ride a bike and all these wonderful outdoor things that uh we definitely wouldn't have been able to do in new york but now that we're back in new york he still wants to do so we're figuring out how you navigate that here mm. So is your wife back to work now? Yes, yes. She went back to work uh, last week was her first week back. And this is her second week. And uh, she works at a, a general practitioner's office. So she is seeing, uh, actually, her job suddenly became a lot easier because she, her office is within a bigger hospital, the New York Presbyterian, one of the big New York Presbyterian hospitals here in the city. And uh they have it set up so that if you present with COVID in any way, shape or form, you are immediately whisked away to a different area of the hospital and her area of the hospital, which is where you would normally go for a checkup is uh, a lot of those treatments can be done via telehealth via zoom calls and what have you. And so whereas they used to have 200 patients in a day, they are now maybe seeing in person about 25 and a lot, a lot of the rest of the time is just on screens, you know, figuring out whether or not, whatever someone is uh, experiencing is uh, at the level that they need to physically come in or whether it can be solved remotely. Wow. That is exciting. It's a brave new world. The things that we yeah, just, I mean, it, we have so many things like that available to us now. It's true. I mean, I, I also finished March through June as a preschool teacher because they shut down all the schools here and our four year olds <laughs> still had to go to school. So yes. I was learning what it is to be a teacher. And I have many friends who are teachers, uh, mostly theater teachers, as it turns out. But uh, they uh, I always had appreciation for them. I have even more appreciation for them now, particularly the young, the, the teachers of young students. Yes. Um, because that is just, it's a lot of energy to contain and focus. And I, I was pretty, you know, I remember a time where I used to think dealing with uh, some grouchy stagehands was annoying, but boy, I could handle them in a second now because I have wrangled a toddler for three and a half months and that is a skill onto its own. Yeah. When the teachers come back, if they ask for a thousand percent raise, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it. Yes. Yep. Yep. You deserve it. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> so this actually kind of leads into the, the bulk of our conversation is today is with so much technology and business uh, corporatization of theater and entertainment, do you find that schools are preparing the kids for the modern workplace? And we can dig dig deeper into some of these different topics here, but overall, do you think that the modern education system is preparing people for a life in entertainment? 
well, the short answer to that is kinda. Um, mm. I think that there are, I mean, there's a lot to learn. Let's start there. There is a lot to learn. And I think that especially, you know, when I talk to high school students, I've uh, over the break, we'll call it the intermission, I think has been the, uh, the tactful word I've, I've heard referred like to as that. what we're doing right now. Over the intermission, I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to the classes of a couple of my friends who are theater teachers in high school. And a lot of them had questions about choosing undergraduate programs and the training and then becoming a professional. And one of the things I wanted to point out initially to the high, to the high school level people who are doing, you know, tech theater in school is that I don't know that when I was looking at programs at the age of 16, 17, that I even knew what to look for. Um, so I would say that part of that, part of the issue or part of the, one of the areas for improvement uh, in the educational system as a whole starts as far back as high school or middle school, um, making sure that the teachers there are trained in helping their students realize what program might be good for their interests. I, for instance, I never knew that if a school had a strong graduate program that as an undergraduate, you need to, needed to worry about not getting as many opportunities to put work on stage because those opportunities were going to the grad students. Or maybe you're being taught by grad students because that's how their system is set up as opposed to being taught by actual professors. Um, and, you know, that was just one of the things as a 17 year old, I, I wanted to know where all my friends were going and I knew the, you know, banner name colleges that I, I thought I might want to get into. But when I first went to school, I didn't go as a theater major. I was going to try and get out of the, uh, to get this monkey off my back uh, of, of live performance, which I'd been doing for so long. And I was going to go in as a history major. And I ended up actually getting a job at my university in the theater department before I even started classes. Cause I went in just saying, hey, I'd like to help out. And they, they, I mean, maybe they spotted a sucker from a mile away, but they said, oh yes, you can help out. Uh, I was working in the, as, as exactly, I was working as a carpenter and electrician uh, and getting paid by the theater department uh, before I even started classes. And about two weeks into classes, I had already changed my major to theater because there was no denying what I was, what I was most interested in at that point. But one of the other things is uh, the difference between uh, BA and a BFA, a BFA is a Bachelor of Fine Arts is obviously very focused on what you want to do, acting, design, etc. I mean, they have it for music and, and other aspects of the arts as well. A BA, which is what I got, a Bachelor of Arts is more, I would say more well-rounded, but they, they both have their virtues. Um, I had to take math and science classes that a person with a BFA didn't have to take. When I was in Grad school, uh, we, uh, I went to NYU and one of our classes, because we don't have a directing program anymore, we team up with the directing program at Columbia University. And the directing program there is taught by a theater luminary named Ann Bogart. And I, we went to our first day of interacting with the students and I was giddy because I was going to meet Ann Bogart and my classmates uh, were less giddy because they had never heard of her. And it stemmed from they they had either been at BFA programs or one of my uh, classmates uh, is European. And so he had just not had the American history training that, that I had gotten in the theater, in my theater department in undergrad. And I remember going up to her and saying, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, you're the first person I've ever met who was the answer to a question on a test I've taken, uh, to which she rightly nice. did not know how to respond. And I felt very awkward, which is really most of my life. So it worked wonderfully. But that was the first instance where I realized, oh, wow, I received a different kind of training uh, from people who have gotten BFAs. Now, at the same time, they knew a lot more about the nuts and bolts of design than I did going into grad school. It's one of the reasons I went to grad school. Um, you know, not that I didn't receive great training at my undergraduate program, but, you know, I didn't get as hands-on multi-year drafting courses and, and, you know, other design aspects that, that they had gotten because they didn't have to take you know, astronomy and uh, statistics and things like that, that I did have to take. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the wonderful things about doing theater and, and opera and really anything with a narrative 
is regardless of whether you're acting on stage, directing or designing, when we create a world on stage, we're expected by the audience to know something about that world. And so it, you know, if, if we're, if the play or opera is set in 1920s Japan, then I suddenly have to be a, not an expert on 1920s Japan, but I need to know something about it. And so I felt like my BA training helped me kind of already have avenues for figuring those things out, which was really great. So that was one of the things that just talking with high school students that I was really interested in. But the other kind of big thing that I've learned more and more as I talk to people who have graduated and I've talked to teachers who teach undergraduate programs and I've even interviewed for some uh, undergraduate teaching positions is the lack of focus on the business side of show business uh, mm. and, and the myriad of things you need to know as a small business uh, to survive. I mean, this is how I pay my bills. So I need to know how to pay those bills. Uh, and it's more than just how you get a job, which is definitely important, but it's, you know, how you do your taxes and how you, uh, what things you can report on your taxes and what things can be written off on your taxes and obviously this varies from country to country like even just as simple as putting together your resume if you're a designer putting together your portfolio if you're an actor putting together your reel or whatever in my program we were kind of told that in a senior seminar in our last semester of our fourth year of school when you know mentally you're probably already ready to go it's oh yeah by the way you have to pay taxes and good luck Goodbye. So uh, when I, yeah. So when I was when I was uh, talking to different undergraduate uh, universities, and I was interviewing to teach there, you know, they always had that session of, well, do you have any questions for us? And one of the questions I always had was, how do you guys teach the business of what we do to your students? At what point do they start, and who's teaching them, and etc. And for the most part, I got exactly what I myself experienced, which is, well, when you're a senior, we talk about, we cover that in a senior seminar. And for me, I think you should be learning it from the beginning. I mean, you can, it's a lot to learn. It's just as much how to run a business as how to do the art. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think if, if I had known that, you know, I know a lot of my friends who got double majors in English and, and theater, I would suggest getting a double major in theater and business because you're going to be running a business and having mm -hmm. some training in it is, is vital. I agree. It's actually jarring to a lot of designers that once they move up the ranks through either technician or programmer or associate designer, as soon as they realize that when you start designing, you don't get to touch as many lights and do as many things because you're so busy doing paperwork. You got to, you know, you got to fill out W-4s and 1099s and... I always say half my job is reminding people I exist. I mean, I'm working on one show, I'm prepping the next show, and I'm trying to convince someone to give me the show after that. So I'm always trying to, like, you know, it's it's getting your name out there, reminding people you exist. Uh, I've always said I've tried to quit Facebook three or four times, uh, but the problem is that's how I continually remind people, hey, I'm here, look at the show I just did. Or, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be work-related. It can be directors I worked with ages ago just checking in and saying happy birthday. I've, I have gotten jobs from wishing someone happy birthday, and it wasn't because I was kind. It was because they, it had been seven years since we had done a show together. They had totally understandably forgotten about me, and my just saying happy birthday at the right moment when they had just been offered a show meant that they could say, oh, Jimmy, thanks. By the way, we had fun seven years ago. Do you want to go to this other thing with me? So, like, that's our that's – our, I would say in our industry, we have a kind of unique way of advertising. It's, I'm not going to buy a billboard or advertising before a movie that says, Jimmy Lawler, letting designer, hire me for your next, like, I wouldn't do that. Although I'll admit that I have thought about it just for fun. Just it would to get be fun. One of those, just, just I, like in the New York area, um, I just thought it'd be fun. It's ridiculously expensive as I expect it should be, but I, uh, I, I looked into it just for shits and grins. Yeah, definitely not doing that. Our way of getting work is <laughs> being next to the person who gets a job and then turning to you and saying, hey, what are you doing? 
two months from now or you know going to the bar at the end of the night and someone else comes in from their show finishing and you guys start talking and then you realize that you should work together i always i I went through uh, a conversation with some of my peers about having meetings in bars and some people said that it's a bad uh, culture for us to have our meetings in bars because people will hit on other people and and i hear all that and i I come at it as a as a white cisgendered male, so I am at the top of the the heap as far as privilege goes. But one of the things that I like about meetings and bars, and and it's it's what I like about the meeting. I'm happy to change the venue, but one of the things I like about the way those meetings go down for me, at least, is when we're in tech, when we're trying to get a show up, and if you're in a rushed thing, like when I do dance, often we tech in the morning, we do the show at night, and that's it. You know, if you're if you're on tour, you have a couple hours to get the show up, and then you're done. Even if you're doing theater and you have a week or two weeks to do uh, to get a piece up, you know, it's intense, and I want to know that the people I'm in the room with basically aren't assholes, and so like. Part of the interview for me is just learning, hey, can we get along? Because if we can get along, that's great. I'm willing to go do this thing with you. Um, if, if we're not getting along where there is no pressure, then I definitely don't want to enter a high-pressure environment with you. That's not going to be fun for either one of us. And, and ultimately, I get paid to have fun. So I'm, if I'm not having fun, I've always said I would get out of this business in a second if lighting design never stopped being fun for me. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like at, at the moment we're in right now, there seems to be a cosmic push to get out of the business. But uh, again, I really just can't think of anything more fun I would do. So I'm going to keep, I'll just wait until it's done, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that business side of things that I wish training programs put a greater emphasis on and a greater emphasis from an earlier time on. The networking aspect that you just mentioned isn't necessarily a class but it is something you kind of learn through osmosis in the college and university atmosphere. You kind of learn like, look, we all have to get along going out to a bar after the show or before the show, preferably not before the show, but Hey, no judgment, no judgment. That's something that you learn in that environment because outside you don't really have the same way to find people who are like-minded yeah, I mean, at the same time, for undergraduate programs, uh, where I went to school, James Madison University, which is in Virginia, they have two main theaters. The main stage, which is, you know, they have guests. I've been back as a guest designer, and they have faculty who work there and students who kind of work their way up and achieve the ability to do a show on the, on the main stage. But then they have a, a black box theater, which is kind of selling it short. It's a They have a brand new center for the arts, so it's a very nice space. Um, and it's completely student run. And we had that when I was there, it was in an old turkey hatchery, but uh, the same idea is that it was completely student run. But it was all those people who you're in the room with there, I think it's important to remind students that all those people wanna make it just as much as you do. And when they get out, those are the directors, those are the playwrights, those are the compo- the you know the choreographers that you want to, again, remind them that you exist because when they get a gig, they're gonna need a lighting designer, a set designer, a sound designer, whoever. And the, the only people they know is it, gonna be the people they went to school with at that point. And so there, there is importance to that. One of the reasons I ended up going back to grad school was that I wanted access to the Rolodex of NYU. And I've been out of school for uh, nine years now and I still say 95% of the gigs I get are from NYU or NYU adjacent, um, not because of a name recognition thing, but because of the network. Uh, either, mm-hmm. either the director asked a friend of mine to do a show, a show and they were busy, so they recommended me or vice versa. I mean, that's just how it, getting access to that Rolodex was uh, really important. But I think one of the other things is just the, the number of training programs in the country Mm -hmm. you know it's it's almost every school has a theater program which is great but you know there's only so many theater jobs right now that number is zero but normally uh (laughs) there are a number of theater jobs and i was doing a show 
with uh, Jennifer Tipton. I was her assistant. We were doing a show in DC and she is and has been the chair of design at Yale for a, a number of years. And I had asked her their training program. They only allow two students per discipline, two lighting designers, two set designers, two sound designers, et cetera. And I asked why such a tight number. And she said, well, because I don't, I, it's always been her view that to create any more people than that every year is basically oversaturating the markets and unfair to the students because you know there are only so many jobs out there. And I, I never thought of it that way. And that really resonated to me. And I, I've seen some of my assistants and associates who have decided to go to grad school and they often get great offers, you know, free tuition, all of that stuff from some universities that I, all I ask them is look at what the professors are doing and look at in the real world and look at what the graduates are doing. And if that's what you want to do, then that's great. But if the professors have not worked professionally in 10 years, or they only do one thing during the summer or whatever, then how are they supposed to help you get a job? Because mm -hmm. ultimately getting out of school, in addition to your peers who are trying to get jobs, your professors are the ones that are going to help you uh, transition into the profession. Take a look at, at, at that when you're considering a program. You know, I know some people who go to grad school because they want to teach. And I know some uh, programs that make great teachers. Uh, and I also know some programs that if you mention the word teaching, they will not let you into the school. If you say that that's why you want to come to school, they will say, then we're not the right program for you because they are training professional designers. That's what they mm -hmm. want to train. So, you know, finding the right fit for what your career aspirations are is really, really important. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to have put a lot of stock into graduates who just go right back into teaching because you're not bringing anything new to the table. You're just kind of repeating what you learned out of the book. And that's, there's a time and a place for that. But I, you, you brought up a very good point that you should really be using that as a metric is how professional and how much work your professors can, can expose you to. Yeah. I mean, it, and sometimes it's as close not to be city urban centric, but you know, when I went to school for undergrad, our closest city was Washington DC. So that was kind of the first marketplace that I kind of moved to um, out of school. And ultimately when I went to school at NYU, we're in the center of New York, so very central there. But I always wonder, you know, if you wanna work in Chicago and you're looking at schools, you know, Northwestern is there and it's a great training program and the professors there are great and a lot of them work in that market a lot. Um, I had a friend who graduated from James Madison University and she's a brilliant lighting designer and she was presented with two options out of grad school. One was the design fellowship at Arena Stage in Washington DC, which I actually attended. And she also got something through, I think it was KCACTF, which is the college competition, theater competition. The, she won and I think the prize was a summer intensive at UNLV, the University of Las Vegas. They have a big live performance and they're mostly concert and big show focused. Uh, and, and she was asking me which one she should go to. And I told her, I said, if you go to arena, you're going to do a lot of plays and musicals. If you go to the thing in Vegas, you're going to learn how to put on one hell of a rock show or, you know, Cirque show or extravaganza. Uh, not that those skills don't, I mean, they translate, but you're, you're starting to form your network right now. So mm -hmm. think about what you're interested in. You can always change your mind, but think about what you're interested in and proceed that way. And that really helped her, figure it out because at the surface, they are both amazing, you know, programs, amazing choices, but you have to start thinking about what you respond to as a, as a creative person and what you get fulfillment from. And so she ended up going to the arena stage one, which I, as, as a, as a person who did it, I was trying not to sell it too hard. I, I could only speak. <laughs> I, just, I told her, I said, look, I can speak on this because I did it. 
I can't speak on the other one except by reputation. And so I would encourage you to reach out to someone who did it because they'll be able to speak with as much authority on that as I could speak on the, the theater one. You know, that's something that I was presented with at, out of school. I got the arena stage fellowship and then I also got one at Juilliard at the same time. And the Juilliard one, you know, it's Juilliard, it's New York. Obviously that sounds very fancy, but the Juilliard one was very much electrician focused uh, with a little bit of design in it. And the arena stage one was very much design focused with a little bit of electrician work. So I, I've always thought it's important to have a foot in both fields, both the, the art and the craft. Uh, when I got out of school, I worked for a lighting I worked for Barbizon Lighting for a year because I wanted to learn more about tools and et cetera, different kinds of lights, different kinds of software, different kinds of boards, because I only knew what my university had at that point. So I wanted mm -hmm. to expand my knowledge base. And I think it's really important. You know, some of the best set designers I know come from a carpentry background. Some of the best sound designers I know come from an audio background. I was a electrician for five years. So knowing how everything goes together, I think is vital to making a great design. But if I wanted to be an electrician, then that's what I would go do. And, you know, it's, it's fun sometimes, you know, they, they say it's uh, neck down work, you know, just pick, getting, rolling the road case off the box, uh, off the truck and onto the stage and leaving it there. Like, you know what, I'll be honest, sometimes I don't want to have my finger on the trigger. I don't want to be in the design seat. And I have no problem slinging a wrench because, mm -hmm. I disagree with the idea that it's neck down. Uh, some of the smartest people I know are electricians and, and definitely carpenters. And yeah. so like you need, to, I always say the best sound design class I ever took was a, a C++ computer programming course. Not that that has anything to do with the actual design of sound, but as far as figuring out where the issue is when a system breaks down, they, they go through that, immensely in, in coding and programming because if it doesn't work, the program doesn't work. And so I just always applied that to, you know, if the light doesn't work, you know, what, what, what part in the system isn't working or for me originally in sound, what, what part doesn't work? It, it became very, you know, it was, it was a great transition from one subject to another there. So one of the things you were talking about a lot about was the, the networking that's necessary do you think that the schools are giving people the tools necessary for the networking? Because I, I know when I graduated, I had a, a very nice portfolio that I showed to a grand total of zero people. Yeah. Is that yeah. still being taught? Well, I, I mean, you I graduated nine years ago, but... I was going to say, it's, it's been a little while. And I went to a, a, a very prestigious school, uh, which I'm eternally grateful for. But uh, I think... The first thing is what I was saying before, which is the easiest thing for any school to do is just make sure to impress upon their students that all the people, all the people they're working with right now, all of their classmates are also trying, going to be trying to do it professionally. And so maintain those connections. Those are the first people you can have a connection with because you're doing the same thing at the same time. And then after that, I think the easiest thing is pushing uh, summer internships and apprenticeships, because that is a great way, again, to expand your Rolodex, to meet new people in different markets. I went to USITT while I was an undergrad, and I met uh, some people who hired me for Utah Festival Opera, where I then met people who worked at Arena Stage, where I then met people who taught at NYU. Like, it's, it, I can follow very linearly one choice leading to everything that happened afterwards. And so just impressing upon the students that these, this is the impact these choices can have and this is the reason to keep in touch with your classmates is the first and easiest thing any school can do. After that, pitching, hey, it's summertime, make sure you're going out and expanding your Rolodex, go to these places, do these things. If the professors are working professionally, trying to bring your students along. I know some schools, uh, are against that because it can give the appearance of favoritism. And I hear that, that's totally valid. Mm -hmm. But um, if, if that's not possible, then looking at uh, some summer stock training programs is not a bad thing. I mean, Williamstown being the, the pinnacle in the theater world of uh, a great summer stock program that you can do and basically drop out of school and 
go move to New York and you know everybody already because they have such a, a alumni there uh, that you can really start making money off of. That's great. I don't know that I was originally prepared to meet people in the way I should have. Now, I'm naturally a shy person, so it may have just been me not wanting to do that. But um, I, I went when I went back to work at JMU to design there, uh, I was blown away and so excited that their program now is very much about uh, fostering an alumni network and making sure that the current students are going out and going to these training these summer stock programs and grad schools and et cetera. And they're leaning on their alumni to say, oh, you know, these five people had done the internship at Glimmerglass Opera Festival this year. You know, we have somebody who's really interested in doing that. Can you guys talk to each other and maybe you can write a recommendation or whatever. Um, so explaining that to them. I, I have a little trouble explaining to undergraduates the importance of going to the bar afterwards since so many of them can't legally drink. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I'll be honest, I do mention it. I, I'm, cocktails are a hobby of mine. So I, I feel very comfortable going to bars. It's one of my favorite places. But I, I understand the critique that, you know, people hit on people there and it's not a business mm -hmm. area. So, you know, if, if there's sadly all of us, uh, in the, in the performance world are not gym rats. I, I imagine the same kind of conversations could happen at a gym. I, I only run when chased it's literally in my bio. So I, I've never been a gym person, but I, I understand people enjoy it. So I would imagine mm -hmm. that that's another place you can connect. Um, I'm always fascinated by, and this is another thing I tell students, I'm always fascinated by how I connect with my peers. We all have such varied interests, but the overlap due to what we do to make money is fascinating. A number of my friends love to cook and they will just sit there and talk about cooking all the time. A number of my friends are huge into football. They will just talk about football, both football as I understand it as an American and football as the rest of the world understands it as what I would call soccer. Um, you know, they, they talk about that stuff, uh, fine woodworking, uh, you know, I, it's not that big of a stretch, but the number of lighting guys I know that, you know, build boats or cabinetry or et cetera, uh, is fascinating to me. And I love talking to those guys. So, you know, teaching, I, I guess, yeah, teaching students how to network, is not something that is done as overtly as I think it should be mm -hmm. in training programs. And it's something that I think needs to be started from freshman year onward. And uh, there was, there's a, I don't think I, I think I only have a digital copy of it. It's if it, there's a book called how to win friends and influence people. And Carnegie. yes, exactly. Uh, and it was written, I want to say in the late sixties, Yep. And uh, I gave it as a as a as a graduation present to one of the graduating classes at NYU one year because I was like, hey, I read this book and it's actually it's how to network. And, you know, a lot of the uh, scenarios are very dated, but it it applies to how people interact to one another yep. just as much now as it used to. So, you know, having that as a tool in your toolbox is important. I've also, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine and he said, learning how to talk to production managers, learning how to talk to GMs. It's not just about getting the job. It's about how you advocate for your little corner of the world. Once you have the job, that's something that no one talks about. And you only sadly learn usually after getting screwed once or twice and uh, or, or seeing how it's done. And then while someone is trying to screw you on the next thing, being like, this is not normal. This other person treated me like a human being. Um, so I know it's possible. So like learning how to do that is, is I, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. I was talking with a Broadway producer and he has a, a podcast that, that brings together kind of the producer, Broadway producers and, and directors and, and they all talk. And he was talking about a book called Getting to Yes. And it's a negotiation book. I mean, you know, like I have to negotiate contracts all the time. Well, I used to, not right, not so much right now, but I used to have to negotiate contracts all the time. Um, 
And I know a lot of artists will offload that to their agent. And when I, I went, uh, let's see, probably about seven years professionally before I got an agent. And it's because I actually happened to enjoy that aspect of the gig. Like I really enjoy negotiating. I like reading books about negotiating. And uh, so it took a while before I wanted to offload that. But when I did, part of the agreement I came to with my agent was, hey, I like doing this. And there's going to be some times where I might start things and then hand them off to you. You know, I hope that's not stepping on your toes. And uh, Allison, my agent, is awesome. And she was like, yeah, sure, not a problem. Like, I'm here to help you. Whatever helps you is what I'm here to do. And so that's ultimately why I ended up going with uh, Paradigm, which is my agency. But, you know, a lot of artists, it feels like to me, are never trained in how to do that and have no interest to do it or are intimidated by having to do it. And mm -hmm. because of that, they have to offload it and give someone 10%. And so learning how to do that at the beginning, I think is important. Um, when I was in grad school, we were, our drafting class was taught by John McKernan. And I, I apologize for dropping so many names. It's just kind of how I tell stories. Um, but he, he taught us and he's, very, I think he's very good at drafting. He drafted for, for many Broadway shows and he's an excellent draftsman. And we got to the end of the class after a semester of being taught this and he looked at us and he said, okay, does anybody have any general questions? And I raised my hand and I said, yeah, how much do I charge for this? And he just smiled at me and, and was quiet and, and basically said, well, I mean, charge whatever you think you can get. And that wasn't wildly helpful. Um, mm -mm. as freelancers, we are often asked more so than what I like to call normal people. Um, we're often asked to value ourselves. We're off, you know, if you have a air quotes, normal job, you're asked to value yourself once every, however many years it takes before you change jobs. And often you were offered a salary and then you can decide to negotiate that or not. We are often asked, how much money do you want? Whether that's for yourself, for your team, for your for your uh, budget, for your gear. Um, and we just have to give them a number and then justify that number. And it was amazing, you know, going back to the drafting example, before I got into school, we started talking about it amongst our classmates and in the theater world, and I'm afraid this is gonna make some of your rock and roll friends laugh, but in the theater world, when we were talking, the average hourly for drafting was about $25 an hour for drafting. And uh, we kind of went around and everybody was saying what they, what they charged. And it was, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 or whatever. And it got around to me and I said $100 an hour. And everybody laughed at me. And I said, well, I mean, you can laugh at me, but that's what I've been getting paid. Like, that's what people are paying me. And I was telling this story to some of my friends in the, in the rock industry and, and corporate event industry. Uh, Benny Kirkham uh, was, was one of them. And I said $100 and he laughed. And then I realized he was laughing because he gets paid drastically more than what, I've, what I was charging. And it's just stupid to me that there's not, I mean, there's, that there's an unspoken market rate, but that, you know, I always feel like more information is better than less information. And the way that we get that is by sharing the information among our, amongst ourselves. And so I just, I asked him and, and a gentleman named Scott, who's a projections person. I was like, how much do you guys get paid for drafting? And they're like, eh, you know, like 250, $300 an hour. And you know, my, I do um, some architectural lighting design as well. And people in architecture make easily that an hour for drafting. And so it's the same skill. Um, you're using it for the same amount of time. You arguably had the same roughly amount of training, but mm -hmm. you know, some people are doing it for $15 an hour and some people are doing it for $300 an hour. And it just, it feels ridiculous to me. So I like having those conversations while you're still in school, I think is important so that you have some sense of, you know, so that when I pitch a number to somebody, they don't laugh at me. Or, you know, my favorite thing is when they say, how much do you want? And I give them a number and they say yes too quickly. Well, that means mm -hmm. that you, you, they were expecting to pay a lot more than what you just said. And so, you know, tips like never be the first one to throw out a number or, you know, you, you be vague until they need to get more specific, et cetera, is a, is a skill. And it's a skill that's not really mentioned or taught except on the job. I was doing a show and talking to the scenic designer and we were talking about what we were getting paid. And it's not 
rare in theater for the scenic designer to make more than everybody else. And uh, I asked him, it was this little gig. It was, I was just out of school. And so was the scenic designer. And he, I said, how much are you getting paid? And he said, $1,500 for the, for the show. And he said, how much are you getting paid? And I said, $1,800. And he was like, oh, I can't believe you're getting more than me. And I said, well, did you negotiate? And he said, no, that's just what they offered me. And I said, well, there's your first mistake. I asked for more money. And they said, yeah. yes. And I said, the other thing to think about, though, is you agreed to work for that much money. So basically, you have to be okay with it. You, you, you were okay with it until you realized you could have made more money. So the lesson, the takeaway there should be, I need to be okay with this. I still need to do my full job uh, that I was hired for. But next time I should negotiate because I know I can get more money. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I think having those conversations, again, I often have them over drinks, um, but having those conversations is, is vital to all of us working in the, in the industry and making a living. Mm-hmm. It's funny how people think something is fair until they put it into relative terms and then all of a sudden it becomes unfair. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I believe even animals understand relative fairness, which you just pointed out. That, yeah, he, before the 1800 number came out, 1500 was perfectly happy. He was right. no issues whatsoever. Uh, look at me, man. I'm making 1500. But uh, as soon as you find well, out relatively. And, and the, 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 there's resources too. I mean, a lot of people don't know you know, in the, again, in the normal world, uh, there's websites like Glassdoor and et cetera, where you, people report their salaries and they say, this is what I do. And this is my education. And this is how long I've been here. And this is what I get paid. And then when you're applying to those jobs, you can go on and see, you know, how much the last person got paid, et cetera. We have that too, at least uh, in the designers, for designers in the designers union in local 829, we, one of the features that a lot of people don't take advantage of is, and I've, I've done a number of times, I call the union and I say, I'm working in this space and I'm doing a play that has one set or I'm doing a musical that has nine sets. Uh, you know, how much do have people been getting paid here? And they can't give me names, but they can give me a range. You know, somebody has been, someone in that space has gotten as little as $2,000 and someone has gotten as much as you know, $12,000. And I might go, okay, great. Well, obviously the $12,000 person was, uh, you know, a Broadway person with six Tonys to his name. So not going to aim for that, but I know I definitely shouldn't go any lower than 2000 because that's the low end of the spectrum. And, you know, I'll ask for what I'm comfortable with and I shouldn't say yes until I'm comfortable with whatever number they come back at. And after that point, I have to continue to be comfortable with it. The flip side of that is when I do some of my corporate work, you know, it's sometimes everybody has a bad day at work. You're not, you're not creating fine art. You're lighting a car or something and you're making it look really good. But you know, sometimes somebody who comes in some VP or whatever is like, turn all these lights off. I'm, and they're blinding me. And it's like, uh, well, we also need to see you on camera, sir. Uh, you're paying my paycheck. So I kind of have to do what you're saying, but, but you're telling me to turn all the lights off. Uh, you know, like at, at that moment, I also have to think about, well, this is corporate work. I'm getting paid a lot of money relative to the theater world. If he wants those lights off, that's fine. Let's turn those lights mm-hmm. off. I don't care that the crew just spent two days and, you know, overnights putting all those lights up. If that guy who's signing all of our checks wants to turn the lights off, we turn the lights off. I'm going to turn those perfectly color balanced, perfectly shuttered, perfectly filtered lights off. You got it. Just turn Enjoy them off. Enjoy your rehearsal. Yep. Yeah. We're going to turn the camera on. That's what you look like. Are you yep. okay with that? Because we were going to make you look good. But if you're okay with that, yeah. that's fine. Your check still clears, <laughs> friend. So, you know. That's straight out of Dale Carnegie's book right there. It's just like, yeah, if, if, he, if that's what they ask for, you, you give it to them. You show them what you're doing. But it's, well, I mean, yeah. I, I get, it's, it's also something I get from being a multidisciplinary designer is – I always say I love lighting design because it's a it's a skill that I understand and I can apply it to so many different realms and it's different in each of those realms. Lighting design for dance is slightly different than theater, is slightly different from opera, is slightly different from museums or architecture or TV or any of this stuff. It's all it's all varying shades. And I found in each of those areas 
different levels of input from the person who is the boss, be that the director or the choreographer or the senior vice president who walks in. And some of them are very hands off and are, you know, what you do in lighting is magic. I don't know, just do whatever you want. And some of them are, this is where the light cue goes. This is where the light cue goes. This is where the light cue goes. And it's going to look like this and it's going to look like that. And I just, I personally don't have an ego about it. I'm just, if that's, if they want to be that prescriptive, rock and roll, that's great. I will always ask them, do you mind if I show you something? I had a different idea. Would you mind me showing you this other thing? And I, to date, have never worked for somebody or with someone who isn't willing to at least look at a different idea. Um, they might quickly say, I see what you're doing there. That's trash. We're going to keep doing my ideas. And that's fine. I don't have an ego in that. As long as they were willing to take a look at my idea, that's great. That's, uh, that's a, a very important topic. One of the things that you had mentioned before is that you went from school straight to Barbizon which I have to assume it's because you were able to separate your ego from the job that you needed to do. You're like, well, look, I'm just out of school. I, I want to be a designer, but I'm going to go straight to work at Barbizon so that I can kind of hone all the other skills that are not designer. I'd imagine you had to separate your ego there. Well, there, there is a little thing called educational loans, Chris. Uh, so the, that was, was definitely not a small part of the consideration, but, uh, actually I went from, uh, from undergrad to my internship at arena stage. That was a full season. And okay. then I, then I went to Barbizon and while I was at Barbizon, I was in the systems division. So I was, it was kind of twofold. I was learning about the gear, which is the reason why I went there. I wanted to learn about, uh, any gear, you know, if, if, if I had graduated from undergrad and someone had offered me a Broadway show right out of undergrad, I would have hung a bunch of strand SL, whatever, like strand lights from the eighties, like strand mm -hmm. Lico's from the eighties and park hands. And mm -hmm. that would have been it because that's all I knew at the time. I mean, right. I would have hopefully hired someone who uh, associate that would be like, Hey Jimmy, there's these things called moving lights. But um, I don't know that I like, I would have, wanted to work with gear I was comfortable with. So I knew I needed to expand my, my palette. You know, it's like being a painter and only ever painting with one brush and then realizing, well, there's flat brushes and chiseled brushes and all these right. other brushes that you can do other things with. Um, so that was important to me. But one of the other aspects of the gig was this, in the systems division, they design new systems for museums and churches and schools and anyone who needs the full lighting system. And so I got to learn about that. I got to learn about lighting networks. I've always said, you know, I, I could be a decent electrician. I could never be a production electrician now because the amount of network engineering that you need to know as a professional electrician, and especially if you're the head of a crew is mind blowing to me. Um, and it just, it's not something that sticks in my brain. So I, I'm always reticent to, to wade too far into that pool. I know who to call when I have a problem. And that's for me, what's really important. But you know, that's one of those other things that I've never talked to anybody, but I would love to talk to a production electrician and see how much they make on, let's say a show or in a year, let's say um, for, and they know how to connect a lighting network now, which is, you know, a lot of network switches and ethernet cables and, and computers now. And talk to like, you know, a network engineer at Google or someone and be like, how much do you make? Um, you know, slightly different, I'm sure, but uh, in, in what they do, but they're both doing some pretty heavy network engineering stuff. And I, I would, I would hazard a guess that the guy at Google is probably getting paid a little better. I don't know that for certain. You know, that's, that's another thing where it's like the skills that we kind of filter into the live arts always come from other places first. So I'm, uh, I'm, always fascinated by you know how much they get paid versus how how we have bastardized what they do and now how much we get paid to do it i will i will definitely take a note i would love to do a podcast with one of some of the the more uh, prolific production electricians in our industry i think that would be a fun podcast i'll uh, oh man the stories i i mean that's the other reason why i love hanging out sometimes i just listen to the stories i was doing a new ballet at the, at the joyce and i was talking to the stagehands because i love talking the older the stagehand the better especially here in the city because they have a lot of really great stories and i was talking to this one guy who was working on broadway in the 50s and he was telling me the story 
about uh, Joe Melziner, who was a famous lighting and uh, mostly set designer, but back then they were the same person, lighting and set were the same person. And uh, the master electrician comes over to him and is like, uh, hey, I think this is a mistake. He's like, what's up? He's like, Joe just used Lee 154. Or it says the color order is just Lee 154. And this guy was like, in, in everything? And he said, yeah, in everything. And this stagehand said, wait, who's the designer? And the production electrician said, it's Joe Melziner. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. Just put them in all the lights. And Lee 154, and I'm going to admit that I don't have quick access to a, a gel book right now, but I'm pretty sure it's like a pinky amber or an amber pinky uh, color. And what he would do, what Joe Melziner would do was he would paint the whole set and he would put a level of green, a very faint level of green over everything so that when he hit all the people with pink light, they'd pop off the set. Like it was designed for the light to actually be pinker. And because your eyes will naturally start to make any single color white, the audience saw it as white light. They didn't realize that it was actually slightly red shifted. And uh, so like, those are the stories I get to hear from production electricians and, and old stagehands. And so, yeah, a podcast with, with uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Finnegan or, or uh, Jeremy Wallers or any of them would be amazing because I know they got a lot of great stories. Lee 150, if I want to remember, it's like a pale rose-ish color. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah I'd have to look. Oh, that's a that's a that's a pretty smart technique. Uh, your eyes, I know, right? Just so quickly that you would be able to p make things pop without uh, without even trying. Brain knowing it. Yeah, that's that's old school. I mean, it's always funny to see the the old school tricks come back into vogue. Uh, I haven't seen anybody do something like that, but uh, I don't. I think the only way you get away with that is if you know you're going to do it from the outset, and you are also the scenic designer. <laughs> So we have, we have, uh, we've ripped through an hour really quickly and this is uh, it's been such a pleasure. I do want to get to two last questions that we had kind of talked about before in the New York and in the uh, theatrical opera dance world. Do you think a degree is necessary? And if it is or isn't, is it because of the networking or is it because of the piece of paper? I don't think it's necessary because of the piece of paper in the same way as that's maybe true, at least true as I understand it for other industries. Um, the little theater history uh, antidote, again, uh, Theron Musser, who was a Broadway designer and a prolific Broadway designer and a lot of her assistants and associates became major designers in their own right. She would usually meet them in bars or restaurants and they would come up to her and say, hey, I like lighting you know, my name is Jimmy, can I work for you? And she'd give them a chance. And if they sucked, they wouldn't work for her again. And if they did work for her, they'd keep working for her until it was time to like shoo them out of the nest. And she would kind of give them their own show as a side note to a side note, the lighting design, I've heard rumor, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I've heard rumor that the lighting design, the original lighting designer for family opera happened this way. They went, the producers went to the British, lighting designer Richard Pilbro, and he said he was too busy and that his handy associate who had done a hundred shows with him was ready for his own shots. And that's the person who lit Phantom of the Opera, who, as I understand it, probably has never had another work another day in their lives. But um, Theron would, would shoot people out of the, the nest eventually and they go on to have their own careers. That is a practice that is sadly falling by the wayside now. There aren't as many examples of that as there used to be. Um, Brian McDevitt is a good one. His accolades, uh, Jen Schriever and Jason Lyons, both assisted him and now have major careers of their own. But it's mm -hmm. not so much as that way of happening anymore. And in talking to people in the industry, the consensus I've heard is that it's kind of been replaced by grad school. And so to your question, it is maybe even more about the network now than it used to be. I still think mm -hmm. the training you get is fantastic. I, I, you know, in, in, at NYU, they broke me down in the first year and they built me back up in the next two years. It was great. And I am a better designer for it. And I'm sure that a lot of people who have gone to other programs can say the same thing, but the, at least in my experience, it's that network that you get there that allows you to get the jobs. Similar networks exist. Like I said, a lot of the summer stock networks, uh, Williamstown is one, Glimmerglass in the opera world, Santa Fe in the opera world. Um, 
they have those networks and you can do that gig and then start gigging on your own without having to go to school. It's just a, a matter of, of degree at that point. Um, I think it's probably a little different too if you're an electrician or carpenter or you know something mm -hmm. that's more craft oriented as opposed to design oriented. Um, because the design aspect of things is so much about relationships. Not to say that the craft isn't, but I think one of the things about the craft is it's subjective. People can say, wow, you're a really good electrician because the thing turned on, or you're a really good, this is very much oversimplifying, but uh, you know, the, you're, you're a great sound uh, engineer because I can hear them. Um, the mic works. Uh, there's not that kind of concrete thing you can point to as a designer. Uh, you know, somebody can say, I just didn't like it. So um, I, I think at the upper levels, you know, we talk a lot about different mafias. There's the NYU mafia, the Yale mafia, the SUNY Purchase mm -hmm. mafia, the Carnegie Mellon mafia, the NCSA mafia. I mean, like it's it, all they are people who went to the same school who keep hiring each other. Right. Um, so it's like there, there does at a certain point, you look at the industry and say, well, there's all these mafias. I guess I have to belong to one to get, into this gig. Now, are there way avenues in without that? For sure. But does it make it easier? Totally. And I mean, at least like SUNY Purchase, NCSA, uh, Carnegie Mellon a little bit too. And the educational world's always changing, so this might not be valid in a year. But uh, those programs, their undergrads go out and start working on Broadway or major opera houses, et cetera. So for them, they don't need grad school. Um, mm -hmm. If you went to a smaller undergrad program that doesn't have a lot of connections, maybe you need grad school because you need to get access to get your foot in the door. Okay. Uh, that actually is a great segue. You were speaking about mafia groups. That uh, leads me to my second question. Do people in New York City have to belong to a union? No. Uh, mm -hmm. The Well, so... Let's just talk about designers for a second, because obviously technicians are a are, are different, different bag. Right. Um, but designers, you don't technically have to be in the design union, USA 829, which is a member of the IA. Um, what we always say is the work is covered, not the person. So okay. you can work on Broadway and not be in the union as long as the, all the aspects of the collectively bargained agreement are being met, which is you're getting paid a, a minimum of, of pay. You know, they are paying into your uh, uh, retirement and health and everything. And you know, you're, you're subject to any penalties for overwork, et cetera. Like as long as all of that is met, it's fine. Now the caveat there is if you do such a job and are not in the union, then the, the money your employer is sending to your retirement account, you actually don't have access to because that is managed by the union. So you're amassing money with your name on it that you can't touch. Um, at least that's my understanding. And, and, and you can talk to some, if you ever talk to people who are higher up in the union than me, uh, they might have a different understanding of that, but that's my understanding. But I do know for sure it's the work that's covered, not the people. So uh, non-union members can do the work. Uh, I don't know that that's true if you're a stagehand though. Uh, I know in certain mm -hmm. venues, my understanding is that you have to carry your local one card or carry a card in order to do the work. Um, mm -hmm. For the lighting programmers uh, on Broadway, I've seen uh, most of the ones I've worked with are not local one, even though local one is the, the local for the Broadway houses. Um, oftentimes the designers, the programmers sister in from different locals from around the country, wherever they happen to be when they got their card. Um, so, mm -hmm even even having being in the union is is a vague kind of a vague thing it, do you have to be in in the union yes do you need to be in the local that's right there it depends on what you're doing all right that's a great uh, that's a great answer this has been very enlightening you've definitely been able to go down some deeper rabbit holes with me that i haven't been able to with some other people so i, I thank you for your for your well thought out and well reasoned answers. I, uh, this has been very refreshing and uh, I hope that everybody listening is uh, kind of really taking this as uh, some very wise words from somebody who's been through the, the thick of it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I, I hope that any of those words are actually true. Um, but uh, I bet my words, not yours. Um, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, it's been fun. I love talking about this stuff. And like I said, it's, it's always great 
to talk about the subjects that often are not as discussed in our industry because we all become stronger by talking about them. Yeah, it uh, makes me want to reach out to people and let them know that getting to yes and uh, how to win friends and influence people, those should almost be mandatory reading for anybody who's going to be going into, well, well any business, res- I mean, any business where people are going to be negotiating, which is basically every everything in life. Is, uh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's the, when, I, when I started reading Getting to Yes, the, the number of things I bought that I started to at least ask for a different price on uh, astounded people. And they're like, you can't negotiate that. You're buying something at Target. And I'm like, I can ask anything. You, yeah. All they can say is no. I'm mm-hmm. still going to get the thing. I might just get it for less. So, yeah, I find myself going into it very innocently sometimes. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just asking. And uh, yeah. I'm just asking innocently. And then if, if they don't give me the yes that I want, I'll, I'll put my wife on the, <laughs> on the task. And she's, she's a bit more aggressive than I am. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's never the the talent I've had. Unfortunately, I, the the getting in people's face thing is the thing I just can't I just can't deal with. I, I have it's a skill that I admire in other people. Uh, I have some friends who are very good at it, and especially when you're dealing with utility companies or mm-hmm. you know like uh, your cell phone bill or whatever. Those those are the, that's the times I wish I had that skill, but sadly that's not that's not a skill I was born with. Yeah, my wife has that skill, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful. I mean, it's it is. definitely helpful. It is. Right on. Thank you so much, Jimmy. This has been this has been a real pleasure. Cool. Thanks. <laughs>